0: Executive Director of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, opening you to the No Flood Newscast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, with host myself, Joe Rossi, and co host and Vice Chair of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, Tim Williams. And Tim, we are back for another edition of the No Flood Newscast. And, uh, you know, a lot has been happening, Tim, over the last few months. And, you know, we, we last recorded a few months ago, and there's just been so much to digest. And Tim, I, I mean, I don't know, in in our in my world, it's been coming fast and furious. I don't know, have you been keeping up with all the changes? And we're going to talk about them today.
1: I've tried to keep up with a lot of them, and they've, been, they've come fast and furious between them that has put out with risk rating 2.0, just some of the changes that are coming up in the flood. So, uh, you know, looking forward to uh, seeing what's next and what's coming out there and you know, educating our stakeholders here.
0: Yeah, and, and to do that, we have a very special guest here on the No Flood Newscast today, somebody who has been involved um, in not just the issues surrounding um, the more recent risk rating 2.0 in, in legislative uh, work that's been done on the national flood insurance program, but someone who's been involved in this issue for a while and in with multiple organizations locally and nationally, um, Michael Hecht. Thank you, Michael, for being here today. Michael Hecht from GNO Inc. Michael, thank you.
2: Welcome. Joe, Joe, Tim, thank you guys for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be entering the flood zone. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's what we have now dubbed our, uh, our little studio here, the Flood Zone. This is fantastic. Um, Michael, so we're going to, there, there's a lot to cover, and uh, we're going to get right into it for our listeners here today. But before we do, you know, I, I know there's so many different avenues that you've gone down in order to understand the issues. Um, tell us a little bit about you and your background um, and kind of how you got to where you are today um, to help give some context to what we're going to be talking about.
2: Well, it's a long and winding road, but um, my family is from New Orleans. Uh, My mother married a Yankee, so I grew up in New York. Uh, I ended up working for the Bloomberg administration post 9-11, running their small business program. And then Katrina hit. That brought me down to uh, to Louisiana, where I ran the state uh, post-Katrina program, a CDBG-funded small business program then ended up taking over Greater New Orleans Inc, which is the economic development organization uh, for for the Southeast part of Louisiana. Uh, Flood insurance kind of uh, became part of my life back in, I guess it would be back about 2012 uh, when Biggert Waters was was passed. Uh, And I had one of my board members who lives in Plaquemine, which is the southernmost parish at the tip of the Mississippi River. And he sent me a text and he said, uh, Michael, you should check out this NFIP. I think it's bad. And I remember pulling over to the side of the road, looking up what NFIP stood for, and uh, and my life changed at that moment irrevocably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was the moment you realized exactly what you were getting yourself into.
2: Well, no, actually, to be fair, I I, I still had no idea when we when we took up the issue of NFIP as myself and my colleague Caitlin Burney, who was our policy VP. Um, we, we set out to try to ensure that, uh, that the new NFIP policy under bigger waters would not throw Louisianians who had done nothing wrong, been paying their taxes, paying their their insurance, uh, out of their homes. We had no idea that it was going to evolve into a national coalition and an effort that would end up on president Obama's desk and have him basically signing a piece of legislation, the, um, homeowner's, flood insurance affordability act of 2014 that he didn't really want to sign but we had built such a grassroots coalition that he he had to we had no idea that that was our ambition we had no idea that our chance of success was so slim uh, had we known that i probably would have uh, just not received that text message what really ended up happening joe is that you know we were isolated and i think the general feeling around the country is well you know that's what those dumb cajuns get for you know, building down there at the mouth of the river. What were they thinking, putting a city there anyway? Of course it was gonna flood. And despite our protestations about the Mississippi River being the most vital economic, um, uh, you know, transport lane for the entire country, that attitude didn't really change until the euphemistically named Superstorm Sandy um, hit New York. And when that disaster hit New York and uh, the subways flooded and Wall Street flooded, uh, suddenly, the attitude of people uh, changed a lot, and suddenly we had powerful allies in people like like Schumer and Menendez. And um, then we began, from that point, to be able to build a coalition uh, from other places that had experienced uh, coastal or riverine uh, or rainfall flooding around the country, um, and it began to build. But but the interesting point is that had New York City not flooded. I don't think we would have been able to generalize the issue away from Louisiana, and we wouldn't have been successful. So like a lot of political campaigns, it was a combination of, uh, of some strategy, a lot of hard work, and frankly, a little bit of, um, of circumstance. I'm not going to call it luck, but I'm going to call it just a circumstance that played to our favor. You
0: know, it's amazing how, and, and and I've been asked this before, is how, uh, actually just the other day, you know, how do our disasters, you know, how, how does one end up relating to another? And I don't think you could have illustrated that point better than, you know, I- exactly how you just did and how it moves the policy discussion, the discussion overall, um, into um, something where it made a difference. I mean, we, we had the same issues up here. It made a difference um, to many to thousands and thousands of homeowners um, with keeping flood insurance you know through the HFIAA. And, and on that topic, um, you know, giving us that big great background on on how the, the campaign evolved, talk to us a little bit about the evolution of the Coalition for Sustainable Flood Insurance now a coalition that is nationally recognized, it comes up in conversations that I hear and have with people in, in all facets of the industry, um, how that kind of came to be and, and where that coalition, you know, not only made a difference, but where it's headed.
2: Yeah, so the, uh, you know, the, it's, it's actually, it seems rather quaint in this age of, of Zoom and kind of mass, uh, you know, online conferencing, but, The coalition started uh, by us reaching out to a few colleagues we knew around the country, and we would uh, literally typically end up taking these conference calls from sitting in our car um, outside a coffee house on a street called Maple Street here in in New Orleans. Those uh, conference calls eventually grew really through, through word of mouth and a little bit of national press to where we had, you know, 100 plus people on a single conference call with all the attendant um, you know, uh, awkwardness of that, including, you know, barking dogs, honking cars and flushing urinals. Yeah. Um, but uh, and, and, and it included everything from elected officials from around the country uh, to members of, of floodplain associations uh, to other um, flood related organizations, economic development organizations, and a few very weirdly persistent and informed uh, individuals. And so it was a ragtag bunch, but it was able to generate enough uh, real grassroots political pressure so that we started to um, uh, really, uh, without much money being spent, push back on those that were uh, really against flood insurance policy. And at that point, there was a coalition that was uh, arrayed, I think philosophically, against uh, flood insurance because they felt that it was government intervention and that it, uh, it actually distorted the market. And that actually included folks like the Koch brothers and Americans for Prosperity who are about mm-hmm. as powerful as it comes. So when I say again that our ignorance uh, and naivete was our greatest uh, weapon, um, you know, that's an example of it. But basically uh, it, it got to the point where it became a uh, bipartisan political juggernaut because fundamentally, regardless of what your ideology was, it was a pocketbook issue. And when politicians started having their constituents come up to them and drop the keys to their house at their feet at press conferences, it became politically irresistible. And there was a recognition that throwing people out of their homes who had bought them with no expectation of seeing their flood insurance premium uh, become bigger than their mortgage note uh, was indefensible morally and unwise economically. Um, and so at that point, it became a question of just, um, how we were going to, to fix it. And, uh, at the end of the day, what's interesting is that what felt like victory for our coalition, which was when the home insurance, uh, the flood insurance, um, affordability act, uh, flood insurance affordability act was passed is that, Actually, all we were doing, Joe, is just getting back to zero, getting back to um, the point at which Bigger Waters was was implemented. So what's fascinating as we fast forward to risk rating 2.0 today, um, a lot of what was wrong with Biggert Waters was unintended. It was actually meant to more accurately rate insurance, to send better signals uh, and to create more sustainability for the program. Um, but it got four things wrong. And those are four things that our coalition has been kind of hitting on since 2014. We, we, we capture them with the acronym ramp, um, just because we have, you know, failing memory. And so the R stands for risk assessment where we said had bigger waters had more accurate, more granular risk assessment. Um, it would have been less problematic. Um, the second was affordability and that was saying that had we had affordability Uh, guardrails in terms of uh, how much a premium could go up every year or what percentage of a home's value it could be, we also would have been okay. The third thing, was the M is mitigation, because we we recognize that with climate change and sea level rise, um, flood insurance is really not flood insurance. It's really land use policy. And in order to make it as affordable and reasonable as possible, um, we have to put in mitigation measures at the national community and individual level. Um, the only other, uh, you know, way way to manage this would be to wholesale buy people out of, um, you know, risky properties, which would mean effectively moving half the country, uh, which even under the current administration is probably too steep of a, of a of a price tag. And then the P for ramp stands for participation. Um, one of the, uh, the challenges that we have is that participation has been actually decreasing in flood insurance, um, and uh, that's for a number of reasons, including uh, that it has not been marketed properly, and also there's a bit of a uh, perverse incentive because people feel that FEMA is going to come in and take care of a disaster, um, which kind of creates a tragedy of the commons. And people just don't recognize that FEMA is never going to, that $30,000 is never going to be the same as a quarter million dollars, even if a quarter million is inadequate. So now we're at this point with risk rating 2.0, where in theory, FEMA is meant to be addressing these four issues of assessment, affordability, mitigation, and participation. Uh, the problem is that nobody really has seen the details.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think that's exactly what we were going to dive into next, which is kind of your perspective on risk rating 2.0, which is, you know, but I think, you know, and, and Tim, dive in here too when, you know, when I bring this up, because I, I, I think one of the unique parts of the NFIP is the fact that there are regions um, in our country, that are um, maybe in historically more affected by you know stormy storm events that are used rightfully or not right to highlight you know the effectiveness or or lack of NFIP insurance. You brought up the participation issue. You know, there's the risk rating 2.0 concern. How how do you see you know New Orleans specifically as an area that has um, uh, that that could be, that has been affected and and will be affected by flooding? in the future. I mean, there's some obvious issues, right? There's the Hurricane Katrina type of flooding, but then there's the issues that don't get addressed in the news, which are the rainy days that that happen where, where homes are flooded and affected. So talk to us a little bit about the critical need right, and the effects that flooding has had, the need for that flood insurance program, because you brought up a great point. Affordability has been our biggest concern, and it's a recognition by Congress. They keep talking about this affordability program within the flood insurance program, but I guess there might be also a lack of people understanding why the program is so critical. So talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, New Orleans is, is built on a deltaic plain, uh, which is the sediment from thousands of years of river flooding. Uh, since we levied the river, uh, that, uh, that soil is no longer being replenished and is subsiding. And so that's why the area down here is slowly um, sinking. And that combined with sea level rise and increased weather volatility uh, creates actually a, a triple water threat for New Orleans. Um, the first threat is a threat of surge coming in from the sea. That's really what Katrina was. Uh, and we've mitigated that to a significant degree with a $14 billion, as I call it, the Great Wall of New Orleans, which creates a barrier out in the bay and uh, which, puts, which gates off the infall canals, or the outfall canals, rather, so they don't become infall canals. So the first threat is threat from the sea. Um, the second threat would be threat from the river itself. That one is largely mitigated uh, by, uh, by the Bonacari Spillway and other uh, release systems up the river, which allow us to take pressure off the river if, uh, if uh, it gets too high during a flood season at, at the end of the springtime. Um, and it's also about the integrity of the levees. And that one, um, I, I'm assured that we're in fairly good shape and I'm inclined to believe that. I did actually uh, ask one time and say, well, you know, what would happen if there was a hurricane when the river level was high uh, would that actually overtop the levees because you'd get the surge on top of the high river. And I was told, no, actually, because the river is high, it would actually block the surge. So that, <laughs> that, 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 that moment passed for me. But the second risk in theory could be riverine. Uh, the third one, which is actually the biggest concern today, is, uh, as I guess I could call it with some black humor, death from above. And that would be a Hurricane Harvey type of event that dumped 40, 50 inches of rain uh, on the region uh, over a, a concentrated period of time. because that's about our pumping system, and our pumping system uh, was absolutely state of the art 100 years ago. Now, now it is a, a marvel. Now it is a marvel of antique technology where when we need uh, new pieces and parts, we actually have to mill them ourselves because the companies that made them no longer exist. Uh, and so we're looking to use some of the infrastructure funds from uh, the American Jobs Plan and the Rescue Act to, uh, to begin to rebuild our pumps and power and pipes uh, for, for that system. So because we've got effectively this triple threat of the sea, the river, and the sky, um, the granularity and the new comprehensive nature of risk rating 2.0, where they're no longer just looking at the elevation of your structure but are now also looking at proximity to all sorts of water and historical flooding and a range of other uh, potential factors, it's gonna give more detail into the risk, and I do believe that. That's not necessarily a good thing for New Orleans, if we're being honest about it, because of the, what's, what's the way to say it, what's the euphemism, the dynamic nature of our risk. So um, that is why, one, we really wanna understand the details of this to make sure that it's being done accurately, because um, we don't want, you know, we don't want to be uh, put under any worse stress than we need to be. But the second thing is that, it again, raises this affordability question, which is we don't want just accurate information. We want information that will allow us to continue to live and have commerce where we you know, where we are, and as well as to mitigate in the truly most dangerous areas. Uh, and we still need information on how that affordability is going to be implemented because, um, there's, if you look at the initial numbers, it looks like it's not gonna be that big of a risk, but experience shows that the devil is in the details and uh, and he's getting ready.
1: So, you know, you talk about, you know, education and a few of the things, like I look back at from Bigot Waters and, and your, your coalition certainly led the way to all these other grassroots to kind of latch on and get this information out to stakeholders across the country. And it, you know, it, it certainly, helped and I think we're still lacking in it, but the education certainly gotten better, Michael. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you mentioned the Harbor wall, you know, our other metropolitan areas starting to reach out to you to, to, you guys kind of seem to be the leader, you know, in this project here in, in mitigation, you know, are you getting calls from other areas and, and you know seeing that out there?
2: Yeah, we actually, it, that's actually part of a larger economic development strategy we have that was inspired by the Dutch. Um, So in the Netherlands, they drive about 4% of their national GDP uh, by selling their water management technology, uh, which is everything from architecture to building to engineering to consulting. It's basically, they're seen as kind of the water people. And we said, you know, those images of the Superdome during Katrina will never be expunged from the American consciousness. So let's just own that and flip from being seen as victims of disaster to being the masters of disaster. And yeah, and that's beginning to work. Uh, We have local companies now that are working nationally and internationally as far away as Vietnam. And we are beginning to be uh, visited by groups from around, not just the country, but the world, who are looking for our expertise on how to live with water. Um, Probably the most um, interesting example of that is one day, I I never know what my day is. And so I look on my, my phone and it says meeting with Iraq. So I'm like, okay, meeting with Iraq Geno boardroom. Sure, why not? I'll go there after lunch. So I walk into the boardroom and what do you know, it's officials from Iraq and they've, they hand me their business cards and the business cards are gold. So I know that they're senior officials and they have a translator and they start going through their presentation. And what they want to do is um, Saddam Hussein, uh, who was, I think, Sunni Muslim, Uh, wanted to uh, punish the Shia uh, tribesmen in the south of Iraq uh, who were against him. And so what he did is he dammed up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and basically created a desert where there used to be a swamp, a rich wetlands down in Mesopotamia, thereby uh, economically starving or literally starving uh, the tribesmen who were against him. And so now that Saddam Hussein is long, uh, long gone, they were coming to us for advice on how they should restore the Delta at the, um, at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates River. And they're going through this. And I began to think back to my kind of Sunday school. and I realized that Mesopotamia is actually the Garden of Eden. And I said, my, I said, my Lord, uh, the reputation of New Orleans as a leader in water management has maybe reached biblical proportions because we have folks now coming to us looking for an advice on how to restore the garden of Eden. And, um, so yeah, the reputation is getting out there and um, that's and an
0: incredible story that you know, wow. I just have to say that is incredible.
2: Yeah. 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 And so, you know, and, and the reality is that uh, climate change is a global thing. Everybody's going to have too much water or not enough. And so, um, you know, we understand that if we can help the rest of the world, we're going to create political momentum and scientific momentum to help ourselves. And so, it's definitely enlightened self-interest.
0: Wow, that, that's incredible, and I think that's and and that's a, that's a great segue into kind of what we were going to look at next, which is, okay, so we've got risk rating 2.0, we've got NFIP reform coming up this year, we have all these other moving pieces, there's a economic rebound coming in our country, and there's a lot of things happening in 2021. You know, where where do you see both, you know, the the CSFI coalition and GNO Inc., you know, both moving in the next five years or so uh, in the future? In addition to that, you know, I think it'd be interesting if you want to expand on some of the other economic um, projects that you have going on in New Orleans um, that may go outside the boundaries of flood. Because I think it's important to understand that you know New Orleans. Yes, it's a it's a location that is really dependent on and, and focused on water, as we've highlighted here. But there's also a lot of other great things happening in in the city and the in the region. So maybe talk about you know what that future holds.
2: Yeah, happy to. So I think that you're going to see us focusing on two things in the near term with CSFI. Um, one is going to be uh, understanding more of the details of risk rating 2.0, getting more transparency, more data, more congressional involvement um, with, with FEMA, and making sure that when it is uh, rolled out, it's done so in a way that doesn't cause havoc uh, for you know economic and political havoc. The second thing is just uh, continued uh, focus on reauthorization and reform of NFIP. There've been something like 16 short-term reauthorizations over the past four years. It's really not the way to run this program. Uh, Maxine Waters, interesting, of Bigger Waters fame, uh, introduced a bill that would reauthorize the program for five years and cap rate increases at 9% instead of 18%. So working on programs like that to ensure that overall the program is more sustainable um, is also what we're going to be, uh, be looking at. Um, if people want more information or want to join CSFI, uh, the website is CSFI for Coalition for Sustainable Flood Insurance info, CSFI info. And, um, you know, we, we welcome anybody and everybody. The bar for entry is extremely low. You just got to have um, a good attitude and just a couple yeah. hundred bucks if you're a, if you're a nonprofit. Um, here in New Orleans, there's a lot that we are excited about. I think I would probably highlight. Three things. We've got a big movement now into wind energy, um, because interestingly, um, a lot of the same skills, workforce, and assets used to build and service offshore oil and gas are used for offshore wind energy. So the country's first wind farm off the coast of Rhode Island, off a Block Island, uh, includes uh, structures that were built and are going to be serviced by a number of Louisiana companies. So we see a natural transition of our oil and gas infrastructure, not to quitting oil and gas because hydrocarbons are gonna be here for uh, the next generation, but as an extension of what they're doing an eventual transition. And then over time, we're gonna end up putting a uh, wind, offshore wind in the Gulf of Mexico. Louisiana is actually ranked number four in the country in total offshore wind potential. And we have a company here, LM Wind Power, part of GE, that is designing and servicing the longest windmill blades in the world. They're over, over the size of a football field for a single So wind energy is promising. We have a coalition called the GNO Wind Alliance, the slogan of which is laissez le bon vent souffler," let the good wind blow. Um, Oh, that's great. It is New Orleans. We're also working on something called Neuronola, uh, where we want to make the New Orleans region the MD Anderson of neurodegenerative diseases. What we mean by that is that here in the Gulf South, if you have a bad cancer diagnosis and you have the means, you're probably going to go to the Texas Medical Center in Houston. Uh, They drive about a quarter, about a quarter of all the hotel stays in Houston are people going there for medical care. So it's a massive economic driver. And we think that with our research and clinical expertise, as well as other efforts like uh, Team Gleason working on ALS and the Saints working on concussion, that we can become that for diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, um, MS, um, ALS, all of these uh, neurodegenerative diseases that are going to become increasingly prevalent um, with an aging global population, where the population over 65 is going to double by 2050. Uh, And finally, we're making a big push into tech, but not just tech, but diverse tech. We've got one of the fastest growing tech communities in the country uh, because we're low cost, because We've got the best uh, digital media incentive in America, 25% cashback incentive. But uh, we're also now fourth in the country for African-Americans in tech and third in the country for women in tech per capita. So we're very proud of that diversity in our technology sector. Oh, yeah. And Jazz Fest is coming back.
0: <laughs> All right. My, uh, yeah, because my sister, as, as Caitlin knows, my sister lived there for about five, six years in uh, my frequent visits to see her. Uh, that was always a treat for us to try to time it with that. So uh, that's awesome. Very cool, uh, Tim. Any uh, final questions for Michael as we get ready to wrap up here? Yeah, Michael, I'm
1: just curious. You know, one of the things that we're seeing a lot of the economic development corporations focusing on in, in certain areas is housing. Whether it yeah. be, you know, here in Massachusetts, California, you know, the struggle to find housing for people that kind of coincides with with the workforce, right? Mm-hmm. So what are you seeing in the New Orleans area, especially where you're talking with water, flood and, and housing? It's all drives the same kind of issues. You know?
2: Yeah, I think that you're seeing, you know, um, an approach right now, which unfortunately is still focused more on mandates, uh, basically requiring builders to build a certain portion affordable, as opposed to what I would say is getting to the root causes of of, of lack of affordability, which tend to be Overregulation, the high cost of building, which has gotten much worse post-COVID, where the sure. piece of plywood has gone from 25 bucks to 75 bucks, uh, NIMBYism, where you can see is you know is really what's going on in places like San Francisco and probably Boston. Um, and then what we have in New Orleans is a lack of transportation network, which prevents housing from expanding geographically, which is why places like Houston, for example, or Phoenix have more affordable housing. Um, what, what I think, uh, elected officials still don't quite understand is that developers and builders are, are, are kind of morally agnostic, they're neither good nor bad. If a project can get financed and, and give a reasonable return to the investors, it will get built. And if it cannot get financed or give a reasonable return, it simply won't. So if we want more affordable housing, we just have to kind of work within that box and if we can do that, then builders will build, you know, will build all day. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can move to a slightly more uh, in-depth conversation about affordability where we get to the root causes again, which tend to be that it's just uh, too difficult or too expensive to build. I mean, let's, let's look at California, where in places like Oakland, they've outlawed the use of gas to power homes. Well what that's going to instantly do is increase the cost of housing by another 25%. And by the way, that electricity, that's not powering the house. How do you think that's generated? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, there, there needs to be a little bit, I think, I think a one level deeper of thought into this. What, what are you guys seeing in Massachusetts in terms of affordability?
1: Well, it, you know, the pent up demand is just outpaced everything now. Cause you know, especially when you have a millennial group and baby boomers trying to compete for the same, Types of housing stock, you know, um, you know, stuff on the coast is obviously getting gobbled up because you have got a secondary market as well. Yep. So you know, you're you're seeing um, there's just not enough housing stock in the area, and there's not
2: we don't have the land
1: like we do, you know, in places like Texas and that area. Right. So, you know, it, it's driving costs way up. You know, and obviously building costs are through the roof, as you mentioned with lumber coming out of COVID here. So, um, you know, so we're still seeing you know people. You know, hasn't slowed down the coastal market, and whether it's flood insurance, and you know, hasn't really slowed down uh, that area too much. So, yeah,
0: and and you know, a unique issue that we're seeing, and in Michael, you may end up seeing this in in New Orleans and other metro areas. I'm sure are seeing this, and we just talked about this the other day. Is The, you know, the metro areas are people left, a lot of them during COVID, right, to buy these second homes in these coastal markets. And a lot of them didn't understand what they were getting themselves into when they went out to these coastal markets to purchase (laughs) homes. And so we have seen, Tim and I and, and others in the industry, what we're seeing is... The second home buyers now, after going through a, a winter right up here, we get our storms in the winter, and I'm sure in other places like with the hurricane season in the Gulf. Kind of after a year of going through that, they kind of go, "Hey, you know, we need a little bit more knowledge and help here because we didn't know <laughs> what we were getting into yeah. when we went from an apartment or condo building in the downtown to our single family dwelling on stilts near the water." And I, nope. and that is something we're also seeing.
2: Yeah, there, there, there's gonna, there's a lot gonna be a lot of post-pandemic puppies, post-pandemic houses, probably post-pandemic boyfriends and girlfriends that are all gonna be questioned now as we return back to uh, the normal. That's uh, there's no doubt about that. Here, here's a fun fact: construction is the only major industry sector um, in I don't know the country or the world where productivity has actually gone down over the last 20 years. We're actually in real dollars costs uh, more to build now than it did uh, generations past. Wow. Backwards.
0: That's really interesting. That's a great statistic. Yeah. Um, Well, we're going to wrap up here because we could, this, this is awesome. And and you're so knowledgeable about all these different issues, whether, you know, from an economic and flood and all these other standpoints. But there is one thing that I, uh, I think we've got to ask on the way out, which is what are the Saints chances this year now that you guys have lost Drew Brees?
2: Well, you know, um, of course, you know, losing Drew is, is really significant, uh, not just because of his skill, but because of his, his leadership for the team. Um, but, uh, but coach Sean is still there and he is an offensive, uh, genius. They've got some, some great talent all the way around, uh, including Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara, who is just, uh, absolutely a stunning uh, athlete and they've got a great, great back office. And so, um, you know, I, I wouldn't bet against him. That's what's wonderful about the NFL, you know, any given, any given Sunday, right?
0: Yeah, oh, that's great. Well, we certainly, um, we up in New England, of course, lost Tom Brady and have seen the impacts directly from that. So uh, we'll certainly be watching New Orleans <laughs> this know, year to see what the I mean, impacts are there.
2: It's, you know, yeah, he's, he is an extra, as extraordinary of an athlete as Drew Brees is. And Drew is extraordinary because he's basically my size. Uh, what Tom Brady is doing and how he seems to kind of be Benjamin buttoning at however old he is. How is Tom? He's forty. 40- Forty-five,
0: I think. Forty-five. 45 or-
2: right now, whatever he does, like eats tomatoes or doesn't eat tomatoes, I have to start doing that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the No Flood Newscast. And in what we've said to other guests who have a lot of relevant information about this topic is. We would love to catch up with you as we go through, you know, let's get through 2021 and see where this starts to shake out. As we know, there's two implementation dates of risk rating 2.0, October 1st and April 1st. Um, and let's take a look back after that and uh, you know, analyze um, you know how your region's doing, how CSFI has taken a stance, and you know catch up uh, again on the podcast to kind of give a status update because I think it'll be helpful. Um, not only will we all be going through it, but we're going to really start to see the economic impacts if there are major ones uh, within the next year or so.
2: No, that's great, Joe and Tim and thank you for the time. Let's definitely make this regular, and thank you for being. Uh, you know a great spokesperson on this issue and helping to educate uh, thousands uh, if not more millions of Americans on this this is a this is fundamentally an education campaign and uh, you know y'all are some of the tenured uh, professors now um, in the subject so thank you
0: yeah no thank you and uh, Tim uh, thank you for um, you know your insights on you know housing and, and all the other pieces that play in a, a major role in uh, what we're doing here and Uh, We will see everybody next time on the No Flood Newscast.